Welcome to Remarkable Retail Podcast, Season 7, Episode 10. I'm Michael LeBlanc. And I'm Steve Dennis. Our very special guest for this episode is Lori Lamb. She is the Chief Brand Officer for the Phenomenal and the Phenomena that is Elf. Steve, between us, uh, our department store experience and other retail engagements, we've seen a lot of beauty brands come and go. There's a lot of them out there. What in your mind makes uh, Elf different and worth uh, deeper exploration? Well, I should probably save a little bit of that intrigue for the interview because we we get into that. But I'll, I'll just say, mm-hmm. from a performance standpoint, it's quite. Which we do talk a little bit about. Uh, we do talk about that a little bit as well. It's really hard to point to a brand in any category that has been as successful as these guys have been over the last five years or so. I mean, they've gone from being um, you know kind of a an also ran little little brand a decade ago to this powerhouse in financial performance consumer performance um, so I part of the reason why we wanted to have Loriana and, and talk about the elf brand is just how phenomenal their growth has been and continues to be so we'll, we'll let uh, we'll let listeners hear about what the secret sauce is behind it but uh, yeah I would have uh-huh. uh, you know if you had asked me five years ago, whether uh, a startup could could go and mm-hmm. and really mm-hmm. disrupt this category in the way that Elf has, I would have said, no, nah, it's just too hard. It's too mature. You know, what's going to be that that point of differentiation that's going to allow that to happen? And here we are, you know, with a multi billion dollar company. So, well, there's no question the odds were stacked against that exact outcome. But uh, as as you said, uh, it's an Elf and great interview. There's a little bit of a preview as to uh, part of the discussion. All right. <laughs> Speaking of uh, great things, drum roll, please. Uh, your new book now available for pre-order. We've uh, we've teased a bit of the content already in the show. We've mentioned it uh, very broadly, but uh, and we're going to do a, a, a much deeper dive preview in the next couple of weeks but uh, what can you tell us about it today yeah after all the teas finally the genie is out of the bottle or whatever uh however we want to describe it yeah um the book's called leaders leap transforming your company at the speed of disruption it is available for pre-order uh probably at this point just about any place online that uh you might get your books from if you can't find it uh, it's probably just because the metadata hasn't populated across the various platforms. So if you mm-hmm. can't find it, maybe go back in a couple of days. It, it should be there, but it is on Amazon, Barnes & Noble, et cetera. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, the book is about why transformations fail or fall well short of their goals. Fundamentally, I'm making the argument that leaders really need a paradigm shift, uh, make some very fundamental Changes rethink their approaches in many ways if they're going to avoid irrelevance or even perhaps going out of business. Uh, I've said to people, and this will resonate with many, but probably not all, that in some ways it's an updated perspective, kind of a innovator's dilemma. If people know that book, Leighton mm-hmm. Christensen's book, or or um, Jim Collins' Good to Great, kind of an updated perspective for. Uh, the d- digital age, because both of those books were written really before digital disruption was a thing. Clayton's book is 1997. Jim Collins' book is, uh, I believe, 2001. So mm-hmm. that was really well before e-commerce was significant, before, I mean, well before social media really existed, well before the iPhone existed, et cetera. And so we've, we've clearly seen a tremendous amount of change uh, that's created 
you know, much more accelerated disruption. So uh, that's what the book is about. As you mentioned, we're going to talk about this in a bit more detail yeah. in a couple of weeks. So we'll leave a little bit of gas in the tank. I will mention one other thing quickly, uh, which is that it is not a retail book. Right. I absolutely draw on my experience from retail. And there are a few things that I kind of carry over or revisit a bit from Remarkable Retail. But this is really a book about leadership. It's a book about business strategy and transformation. Uh, but it's particularly about what leaders need to do, not so much, you know, culture or organization. I'm really taking much more of kind of a personal approach. So um, if folks are interested and would like to pre-order, that would be great. That helps the retailers that are trying to make their decisions about what to stock in their stores perhaps mm. decide to carry it. Mm. Uh, it also helps other people find it. So uh, pre-orders are important. And of course, if people want to spread the word to their friends about it, that would be great as well. But more on that, I'm sure down the road. All right, let's, let's move to the news. Uh, geez, it's been such a tough week. Um, I guess uh, reflecting back that the world becomes more VUCA-ish, right? I mean, <laughs> you know, as we head towards some weeks of normalcy. Uh, we still have the ongoing war in the Ukraine. Now we have these terror attacks in Israel. What do you make of all this? And, and um, I guess it, it, you know, you've just been writing about leadership in, in changing times. Any, any thoughts that help us put this into context? Well, I, you know, I decided just to mention this briefly. So uh, people who have read the book may remember that I talked about this, this concept of VUCA, which is an acronym that stands for volatile, uncertain, complex, and ambiguous. And the argument that I make, others have made, is that the world is just more volatile, uncertain, complex, and ambiguous than than it was years ago. I did think, and I guess I was hoping, that part of what was going on as we think about you know how to set forward strategy is that things were settling down a bit. Not not the war in Ukraine, but uh, it actually looks like in the last few weeks things have kind of tipped back in the other direction. Obviously, we have the horrible, horrible terror attacks in Israel. Mm -hmm. uh, but economically, you know, we've, we talked about this a little bit last week, but it, it looked like, you know, uh, interest rates were starting to kind of flatten, but actually they've gone up. You know, we talked last week about how they've popped up again. They've popped up yeah. again more mm -hmm. this last week on the, on the probably um, a lot of this news. Uh, still pretty uncertain inflation, Outlook, we got some more news on that this past week, and it's it's kind of mixed. In some cases, it looks like it suggests that inflation is being tamed. In other cases, it looks like it's still kind of flatlining. So maybe getting from that kind of 4% rate down to 2 mm -hmm. might be a bit tougher. In the U.S. in particular, uh, you know, we've got this government chaos. I mean, it's just unbelievable what's what's going on. You know, we can't govern at all in the federal government because the Republicans – are having a hard time finding anybody who wants to be Speaker of the House. Now, with any luck, by the time people listen to this episode, that'll be sorted out. But in the next few weeks, uh, we're risking another government shutdown because the the agreement that was reached a couple weeks ago was only a 45-day agreement. So we're going to be doing this all over again prior to uh, the end of November, I guess. And then the UAW, United Auto Workers, strike, uh, which has been fairly limited, uh, has been expanded. Mm. And, you know, we'll see again, you know, maybe by the time people listen to this, that will have been settled, but it's not looking super positive. And if that were to, you know, with the auto industry being such an important industry, you know, not just in the U.S., but has ripple effects beyond, if that strike were to expand, that's that's not great for the 
the economy and for the holiday season. So, yeah. I mean, I think this just, uh, you know, calls us to accept that, you know, this is kind of our reality and, uh, you know, just argues for digging deeper on trying to understand what's going on, building agility into your system. A lot of things we, we talked about when we did a focused yep. episode on this idea of VUCA. So I think that's, that's it for now. Uh, let's talk about mall traffic, speaking of physical retail. So uh, Placer, our friends at Placer AI had some interesting traffic uh, data talking about um, visits to indoor malls declining. But I think there's more to it than that. What are you, are you <laughs> well, inter- interested to get your perception about you what, know, could, what could drive an in, a decline in mall traffic? Well, as we think about intellectual property, you know, we've got the wobbly unicorn segment, Mm-hmm. Uh, perhaps we should have the I told you so segment because <laughs> uh, I mean, I think this is interesting, but you know, there was this was another one of these narratives that had, that had evolved uh, or evolved, but had emerged, I guess, in the past year that oh, you know, malls are back. And yeah. I'm like, ah, I don't know. <laughs> mm-hmm. Well, what the placer data shows is that store visits or trips to indoor malls declined 4.8% year over year in August. And then it was even worse, uh, eight point or yeah, eight point seven percent decline in September. So you know you could look at this and say that you know the comparisons last year were more about you know people kind of getting back out there post COVID kind of kind of thing. Um, or you know one of the things I wondered about, and their data does not highlight this, is you know there was this Barbenheimer effect, yeah. and Huge. it was really hot. And so I do think some of the some of the July data, uh, you know, perhaps was uh, you know inflated a little bit about that. But you know what the may, you know what might be the savior though for indoor malls? The savior for the NFL at the same time is as all roads really lead to Taylor Swift or they Beyonce. All do. They yeah. all do. They so all the do. Taylor movie, I believe, uh, just opened today. I think um, mm-hmm. as we're recording this on Friday. But uh, <laughs> who knows? Maybe that'll drive some traffic back to malls. But that doesn't necessarily mean they're going to shop. Reminder, dwell time does not equal sales. There you go. An important public service announcement. Uh, let's talk about uh, IP Fever. We had some fun with IP Fever, uh, but uh, folks at Birkenstock who did theirs this week, we talked about in the last episode, they seem to have tripped over their sock in Birkenstock feet because they ain't going so well. <laughs> yeah, um, they went, yeah, Birkenstock went public this past week. They were seeking a $9 billion valuation, but the stock closed the first day well below, I think about 15% below the uh, targeted opening price and has also been trending down-ish over the last few days. Um, so that's not awesome. I will say that the uh, to the extent that there's rivalry in this mm. in the ugly shoe space, I'm sorry, <laughs> projecting my own personal point of view on that. I like Crocs. Um, I like Crocs. Birkenstock is still valued more highly than Crocs. But anyway, Mm -hmm. one of the more interesting points, and uh, credit to to friend of the pod, Scott Galloway, because he went into this on his podcast, it actually turns out that the IPO market in general, not just for retailers, has been pretty terrible over the last Mm -hmm. few years. Um, You know, we had talked multiple times about some of the retail disruptors and how their stocks mm-hmm. are down 70, 80, 90%. So that's an obvious yeah. point specific to, to retail. But if you look more broadly, IPOs over the last several years have performed well below the overall mm-hmm. stock market. And yeah. um, so, you know, where I think it used to be more of a way to really um, 
you know, get capital to support growth, mm-hmm. you know, maybe it's a bit more of, of investors and others taking money off the table. And then the yeah. more, uh, you know, everyday investor gets left holding the bag. Let's talk about some um, DTC stuff, and, and not in the unicorn way, but just in the way they go to market. The two, two pieces of news I wanted you to comment on. First of all, our friends at Container Store uh, are uh, doubling down on, on DTC brands because they see them as a way to bring freshness onto the shelves. But at the same time, not that they're the same models, but uh, Showfields, who we also mentioned last show, had um, closed a couple of stores, went into Chapter 11. So what, what, are, we, what are we learning here about the state of, of retail and presenting products? Because I think there's, there's the obvious things that DTC is struggling to find that path to consumers. But I think there's some more important lessons, perhaps. I mean, the container store thing is particularly interesting because they're going so aggressively into adding um, you know, dozens of, of these, you know, DTC newish brands to their assortment. They're also, um, I don't know that we mentioned this on the podcast, but the citizenry, which is a brand we had the founders on a while back. Um, they're not only having some of their products, uh, being expanded across all the container stores, but they're also doing mm-hmm. a shop and shop concept oh, as well. Uh, but stuff. there are many, many more brands that the container store is adding. I, you know, what I think is, you know, what often has happened, over the last few years with, with really multiple retailers is the retailer can benefit from having some of these newer brands because they provide a strong point of differentiation, particularly if the brands are not widely distributed in physical retail. So from um, a competitive differentiation point of view, here's uniqueness, here's innovation, here's some degree of proprietary position you can get by carrying these newer distinctive brands from the brand standpoint, the DTC brand standpoint, you know, here's a way to get validation from a bigger company. Here's a way to expand your sales distribution. Yeah. And, um, so I think done right, it can be a really powerful combination. So I think it's just more evidence that Mm -hmm. it's pretty hard for particularly the smaller digitally native type brands to grow solely through their own controlled distribution mm-hmm. channels. But I think it's also a sign that for uh, existing retailers that are trying to improve their differentiation, mm-hmm. you know, why not partner with some of these brands? Frankly, I'm surprised, you know, we, we've talked about, you know, there's, there's quip toothbrushes at target. And so, you know, there, it's not like yeah, yeah, yeah. this is a totally new thing. Um, but I, I'm, I'm actually more surprised that some of the more traditional department stores or in the, you know, this is now the trains left the station here, but you know, Bed Bath and Beyond and some other of these retailers that really struggled to have a unique product assortment didn't do more of these partnerships mm-hmm. because mm-hmm. I think, you know, like I said, it, it done right. It's it's a win win for for the retailer and for the brand. Ah, interesting, interesting discussion. Well, listen, speaking of uh, interesting discussion, that was a great discussion on uh, news of the week, and uh, congratulations on uh, getting the book. Uh, out and looking forward to uh, sharing with everyone the listeners more about that in future episodes but for now let's get to our interview with Lori Lamb from Elf Cosmetics. Welcome to the podcast Lori thrilled to get us all at the same place at the same time. How are you? Isn't that amazing? Thank you so much. I'm great. Well, I'm just off the plane from New York. Steve's just off the plane from Vegas. Where are you? Where are we finding you? I am in New York right now. I'm in the Upper West Side. Um, Let's jump right in. Tell us about your your background, your personal professional journey, and and what you do for a living. Sure. Um, Why don't I start with, I'll tell you a little bit about what I do, and then I'll go into my journey. Yeah. Um, Today, I am the Chief Brand Officer at Elf Beauty. 
And at Elf, I lead a multi-branded portfolio that includes uh, the namesake brand that you know, Elf Cosmetics. Mm-hmm. We have also have Elf Skin, Well People, uh, Kiesel Care, and our, our newest baby, Notorium. Hmm. Uh, there at Elf, I'm responsible for strengthening our branding, our positioning, setting growth for our categories, and, and not forgetting to champion our mission to make the best of beauty accessible to every eye, lip, uh, face, and paw. <laughs> <laughs> face and paw. Paw. Oh, like, you're going to change. Are you changing the name to Elf? Or? <laughs> That's a good one. I love that. Breaking you know, when, news. I, when, <laughs> when I look at your background, uh, yeah. it seems like you, you're uh, clearly a, a beauty professional with a background uh, in the uh, prestige beauty business. Did you always want to do that? Was that yes. a goal for you? I think so. I, I think so. You know, a little bit about my journey. Uh, prior to Elf, I, I did spend 20 years building global brands at L'Oreal. I had the privilege of working with the best beauty brands, I would say, and the best people in the beauty industry. And I did that in a couple of cool places. I was mostly spent my career in the U.S., France, and Asia Pacific. Uh, my experience was very rich, I'd say. You discover I'm, I'm really not your typical marketer that you may have met. I've pushed myself into other areas of the business that maybe some marketers wouldn't tread into. I've done e-com and digital and acquisitions. Uh, business development and innovation. Mm-hmm. And I've really been blessed with great bosses that really allowed me to disrupt and shape my own career um, with these new challenges. And I've always had a had a thing for beauty. I mean, I, I am that girl that may have been using or may have been sneaking my mom's lipstick into the bathroom at age five, you know? <laughs> and, and from a, a career with a big global brand like L'Oreal, what got you over to Elf? I... You know, I, I, I love L'Oreal and I've got such great experiences there and such amazing mentors and friends that I've made there. For me, I think I was just ready for the next experience and mm-hmm. um, the next challenge and to be able to unleash my creativity. And I really saw the amazing things that Elf was doing and I wanted to be a part of it. Well, if you could share with the listeners a little bit more about Elf. I mean, many may have heard of them. You, you mentioned a few brands uh, in the opening, but give us a, a sense of the origin story and the scale and scope of the business. I would love to. Um, well, Elf Beauty, first and foremost, is a portfolio of brands, and they all have the same vision, which is to become uh, be a different kind of beauty company, right? And we do that in three, three ways. One, by building brands that disrupt norms. Uh, shaping culture, and finally connecting communities through positivity, inclusivity, and accessibility. Uh, the, the ELF portfolio, for those who aren't familiar, it's we have a really strong commitment to clean, cruelty-free free brands, and delivering incredible value. That's really falls. Um, it fueled the success of our flagship brand, which is ELF Cosmetics. And it, it carries into our current portfolio of brands, which include ELF Skin, I mentioned Well People, Notorium, and Key Soul Care, which is a groundbreaking lifestyle brand that we created with Alicia Keys. Unbelievable. I, I have to say I was uh, I was aware that Elf was quite a success story, but as I was del- delving into some of the, the history, but also the most recent performance, I have to say mm-hmm. I'm not sure I can think of any company that is of a significant size that's put together the kind of financial performance as well as just general market performance. Uh, just a few stats I'll mention before we start talking about uh, what <laughs> what's behind this great success. Um, 18 quarters of consecutive sales growth. The most recent quarter, That's as great. I understand it, was 76% in 
year over year, which was on an already quite substantial base. So that's not because it's a tiny business. Mm -hmm. Improved gross margin, more than doubled your EBITDA. Uh, your investor presentation, which maybe we'll put a link to in the show notes, talks uh, kind of lays out some of um, your relative market share performance against brands that I'm sure many other people will, would know. Uh, you continue while well, we're getting a lot of retailers that are uh, either dampening down their their expectations or changing their projections. Your company's projecting robust sales and margin growth for the next year. And not that we like to talk too much about uh, just the stock market, but it's hard to ignore the performance. The stock is up 10x or so over five years and 80% year to date. Unbelievable. Just really staggering, I have to say. So uh, explain this for us, Lori. What what is what are the what's that that uh, those X factors yeah. uh, superpowers? I think I see mentioned from time we to time. Superpowers, yeah. yes, we have the superpowers. I mean, we are the number one, number three brand today in mass beauty, and we are the primary growth driver in mass cosmetics. We're immensely proud of that, you know, along with some other you know awards that we've won along the way. But all this is really no accident. I think it goes back to a reflection of one. I would say our incredible leadership. Elf, but also I would say our founders of Elf. And you mentioned origin story earlier, and I'm not even sure how many people know this. So I'm going to paint a picture for you, Stephen Michael. It all started in 2004, actually, with our founders. They had a vision to bring quality products and make it accessible to every eye, lip, and face, right? And that's actually what our brand stands for, literally and figuratively. A lot of people are didn't realize that. And actually, it was a Jeopardy question once that someone had answered, ears, lip, face. Nope. Um, <laughs> And, and now pause, and now pause. Yeah, and, yeah, and now pause. But um, so we actually, our founders were so disruptive that they sold the brand and they, and they sold the products for a dollar over the internet on a site called eyeslipface.com in back in 2004. And so just to paint the picture, I mean, this is the, the year that Facebook launched and this is well before iPhone became a thing, right? So that everyone said that you're crazy. This is never going to work out, you know, but you know what? It was really fueled with a dollar and such quality products. It fueled a lot of ratings and reviews from a very loyal customer base. And that really quickly expanded by word of mouth. And it was the best focus group that the company could have gotten, right? Because basically you're reading these comments and it'll be like, I like this brown pencil, but I like this, or I like this shade, but I wish it did more of this. So it, it kind of gave them the momentum to course correct and create really great products. And that was the root of the brand. Like those are the roots of the brand. It's like in our DNA to actually disrupt. And I think that that is such a critical part to the success that we're having today because the founders unlock the power of digital and building virality long before other brands did. And so it's in our DNA to sort of stay connected to our consumers. I think really that's a fundamental part to the success that you see today in the performance. And what about uh, what are things that are highlighted around um, kind of your success story within your investor presentation is, mm-hmm. uh, you know, this kind of constant innovation, yes. some of the things you do that are, are quite unusual and, and seemingly yes. quite powerful from a marketing standpoint. Could you just talk about that a little bit? Yeah, I'll, I'll just speak to Elf Cosmetics for a second here. But, you know, we have some strategic imperatives and if you will, they're guiding, guiding lights on, on what we want to put out to do, but, or seek out to do. But our value proposition is really tied to our powerhouse innovation. You know, we, just like our founders, take the best in beauty and make it accessible to, to everyone. 
and we are the number one product in mass beauty today is actually our power grip primer. It is an incredible primer that women use to set makeup or women and men use to set their makeup for long lasting wear with a dewy finish. And it's $10, $10. When you consider that the prestige comparable is actually $38. So as a consumer, you can practically get four for the price of one. And that's incredible value that we're delivering to the consumer today, especially in these economic times. And I think that's a major part of our success, but also our innovation approach is so clear. And our strategy is really to build out these growing and sustaining product franchises like a power grip primer. And that's just one example, but we have many, many more with our Halo Glow face products, our putty putty franchise, our camo concealer franchise. And it just keeps growing and we're going to continue to build more. So these franchises don't feel lonely. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. I was really, I guess I, again, I uh, was aware of your brand certainly, but uh, beauty category is not, not something I spend a ton of time in. And so digging (laughs) into some of the the price points, I was really astounded by, uh, by the price points you're able, you're able to hit. Um, Let's also talk a little bit about uh, your company's commitment to, diversity, equity, and inclusion. That seems to be a, a big part of, of your marketing strategy and I guess just kind of essentially the values behind the brand. It's such a big part of it. I mean, we are a different kind of beauty company, period. And Elf is really inherently a, a purpose-driven company. We encourage self-expression, we empower others, we embody our ethics, and we really encourage and, and strive others to do, everyone to do the right thing for our planet and our furry friends. So you'd mentioned before our um, earnings report, but I also feel we should be sharing our impact report with others because we've been making a lot of big strides to diversity and, and our commitment to DNI. And one of the things that I'm most proud of as an Asian American female is that Elf is actually one of the only one of only four publicly traded companies in the U.S. out of forty two hundred that have a board of directors that has two thirds women and is one third diverse. It is so remarkable because we are really making a commitment to be diverse, not just with your words. You know, I think that's easy, but really through our actions. And we don't stop there. And we believe it's really important that our team reflects our communities, the communities that we serve with our products. So, you know, even amongst our own internal teams and our employees, we're 75% women, we're over 60%, 40, uh, sorry, 40% diverse. And we have over 65% of our workforce is sort of in that Gen Z and millennial area, you know, and it's a reflection of our community that's helping to drive our growth. We want to make sure that people who are in the seats of decision-making power are reflecting the individuals that are buying our products and the community that we serve. Uh, let's shift gears for a little bit. That's a yeah. nice segue, actually, talking about brand and brand strategy mm-hmm. into talking about your your consumers. Let's let's talk about them for a bit. And, mm-hmm. and uh, you know, I guess the frame overall is, you know, let's talk first of all about the unique challenges and opportunities in serving <laughs> a, a teen audience. And, and, and then at the same time in conjunction playing in the, in the kind of mass segments as you are. So set the frame yeah. for us a little bit about uh, who's buying your product and, and what are the uh, challenges and opportunities. I'd love to. Um, I, I see really, I know you just said challenges, but I really see nothing but opportunities. Stephen Michael, I mean, I, 
Elf just, um, Piper Sandler actually just released its 46th annual, um, semi-annual actually, Taking Stock with Teens survey. And there is so much for us to elfing celebrate. Um, I'm not going to curse, so I say elfing. <laughs> we, we, drop, we drop elf bombs here. I was, I was um, waiting so. for that. I was waiting for that. <laughs> so, you know, we are, we are so proud because for four consecutive seasons, we're actually the number one brand. We're the number one preferred brand mm. among teens. And we gained 13 points of fine share year over year. Uh, among favorite cosmetic brands, among all incomes. So we've got so much to be proud of. We're top 10 in skincare, you know, and so yes, we do have, uh, we definitely are, have a lot of multi-generational appeal, but it's Mm. for sure. We, we know that we have a very deeply rooted Gen Z, um, audience and community and thank goodness, to be honest with you, that's why I say opportunities because, Gen Z has been very vocal. And I, I think that it's been so good for a brand like ours that really leans in and listens to our, and I say glistens because of our mm. products that we have. We glisten <laughs> to our community. And every action that we take is really fueled by what our community wants, needs, and desires. And boy, are they vocal. Mm. Uh, actually, our one of our launches, just to bring it back to what you were saying about value proposition earlier, our launch has just dropped yesterday, uh, is a lip oil that we're, we're having for $8. So if you want that ultra glossy tinted lip, I know you guys want that, right? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Nourish, I, I live for this. I know you do. I live for dewy. I live for dewy. That's one of my favorite words. Dewy, well, a dewy, dewy or smoky. I'm always dewy, confused. glossy, smoky, hydrated. I got you guys covered. Yeah. Um, but this lip oil was driven by our community. It was Gen Z who was pounding, Mm. I say pounding the pavement, but they were pounding our social pages, telling us in every single conversation, we want lip oil, we want lip oil. And so we delivered. You know, again, you've created a nice segue for me into talking about uh, social media, which is so important. I mean, right in the genesis of the brand, Mm -hmm. really. So two-part question. Part one is how you're using uh, platforms like TikTok to drive success. And the second question, maybe a little more... um, a little more complex is, mm-hmm. is social media isn't all positive. You're in the appearance mm-hmm. business. Uh, you're dealing with young people. And, and how do you manage, you know, it's not always a great place, right, outside of the context of what you do. So just talk about those two things and, and social media and, and your and your clients and shoppers. Yeah, I think social media has been such a great tool for us, right? We work, um, we, we, you know, obviously have a very, very strong fan base. Every single day we wake up and we have an orbit of 15 million uh, consumers who are talking to us, you know, in some way, shape or form, either it's on social or they're sending us an email. And I can tell you right now that everyone in the C-suite at ELF actually reads every single email that comes through from our community. We feel it's important. We respond to them. We want to make sure that they're heard. And so social media obviously is a very powerful tool for us. We've created an orbit of people who want to be around us and want to share our elfluence. That's another word I'm going to throw in there. Nice. All right. And- Maybe we're going to have to limit you to the puns. Though. <laughs> You're going to have a counter for me. <laughs> And, you know, TikTok has been obviously a big driver for our success. We just hit 1 million uh, followers. We're very excited about that. And when we even hit 1 million in our community, what we did was we celebrated for our community, not by saying, hey, we hit a million, but it was more about we're going to give back to you because you give back to us. So we actually brought back a fan favorite product of theirs, which was Jelly Pop Primer. <laughs> it nearly broke our website. It nearly broke Ulta's website. <laughs> but it was it was really amazing. Our, our fans yeah. go to great lengths, and we love having this community with us on social media. We've dived into that pretty deep. You know, we typically lean in, and we don't wait for signals to tell us where to be. We just 
are where our community is. And I think this segues to your next question, which is about, you know, social media. Sometimes there, there could be a risk, right? Or it's not always a very positive place. I think for us, Elf, we've always taken a very, um, authentic tone. You know, we're always looking for new ways to be part of the conversation. And I think for us, what's most important is to be authentic. And I think that's all we can do, right? Uh, you know, trends come and go, conversations come up, they come down and, and, and some people have bad days and they have good days, but as long as we're real and we have dialogues at, with our community, I think that's what we can do. And we're always in the culture of testing and learning, testing and learning and waiting for signals with our community. We are always listening to what they're saying. So I feel that's always put us in a really great position to be more of a fan and a friend to our community. I think there's a lot of great lessons there for our audience. I'm wondering if we could talk just for a moment or two about, uh, I guess, kind of category by category product strategies, because obviously you've got... um, you know, a number of different kind of consumer segments, mm-hmm. but you've also got a number of different product categories. As you think about, and 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 now this portfolio of brands, are, are there fundamentally different kinds of things you do to really sort out the strategies for the different sub-brands or the different product segments? Uh, or do you have kind of have this unifying um, kind of global approach? To some extent, I would say it feels like a global approach because we know our products really are able and they do have multi-generational appeal. We know that uh, today we have leadership positions in several categories and we want to make sure that we kind of play into that. We have leadership positions today across eyebrow, setting sprays, brushes, highlight and contour. Again, Stephen Michael, I know those those are your categories, right? (laughs) I mean, but, you, if you if you saw me right now, I'm just surrounded by so much product. It's uh, <laughs> crazy. These are categories that our community really loves, and I think one of the things I, I might have mentioned this a little bit earlier, but you know, our value proposition is so tied to our powerhouse innovation. But what we do with our products is our approach has always been to build growing and sustaining product franchises instead of one and done launches. So what we do is when we launch something and we see that it's our community is responding really well or you know, it goes viral right off the bat and it becomes something where we realize we've got a winning formula here, we've got a great price, our, consumer, our community is telling us we love it, we build on it and we continue to build on that franchise and that category until it becomes a category lead, like I just mentioned in those categories that we, we have. So as we launch new innovations within each franchise, that franchise grows. And we believe that's really a source of our competitive advantage because we're not dependent on, you know, proliferating SKUs just to anniversary launches. We're actually just building franchises and things that our community loves. Well, obviously it's, uh, it's working pretty well so far. So uh, I guess rinse and repeat to a certain degree, right? Um, I'm wondering, uh, I guess, just kind of thinking more from a, a leadership standpoint, mm-hmm. you've obviously had a great career at a, at, um, a couple of different very powerful organizations. Um, if you had to impart either a particular experience or learning or case study that you think really informed your success and has really kind of propelled your leadership style. Um, mm-hmm. is, is something top of mind for you? Yeah, I think especially I would, I would share this one, especially because of Elf. I mean, I, I have so much, I mean, how much time do you have, but I will focus on one, which is, I, I think one fundamental part that I've always leaned into is take risk. 
and, and take risk fairly early in your career and take risk in your beliefs as, you know, I'm a marketer. So, you know, a lot of what I do and a lot of what I think Elf does really well is leans into our community and we build constellations, if you will, based off of things that are driven off, uh, you know, in art and science, right? It's uh, it's part gut, but it's also part what you see. So we have a four-part formula. And the first part of our formula is really to lean in and lean in and listen to what your community is telling you. And because some of us are not just born risk takers, we have to kind of have something that guides us and points us in the right direction. And then the second piece I would say as a case study, if I would build, is this recipe that's first and foremost, lean in. Second, build your, put your head in the stars, dream big on what you can do, and then put your feet on the ground and make sure that you have, if you will, the insights and what you can to propel your mission forward, right? And find your, the right people to do that with and force multiply with partners. And that's what Elf does really well. Um, whether it be with a brand on brand collaboration or our agency partners who are essentially just an extension of the Elf family. And then the ability to move elf speed is a really important one because you, otherwise you're just standing still with an insight and a gut instinct and, and something that you think you could be driving forward, but you got to move really fast. And I think all of that comes into being really bold and taking risk. Yeah. Yeah. No, I love that. I love that. And I think that's uh, certainly a lesson that lots of people could benefit from. I guess just before we let you go, uh, anything on the horizon that you're particularly excited about that uh, you might want to lift up? <laughs> oh my God. Well, you know, our mantra at Elf is that anything is elfing possible. That's maybe my last elf bomb <laughs> for you. <laughs> but I, is, I thought it was like aim elfing high, move elfing fast. And that was those are really like, good ones too. Oh my God. Okay. You can be a copyright we'll, for we'll, us. We'll put, you're we'll, hired. Put the, we'll put the t-shirts together and send them over. <laughs> you are hired, Steve. Uh, so we are a different kind of beauty company. I think there's so much white space ahead, you know, in color cosmetics. We want to build more leadership, right? We know we have multi-generational appeal. We want to make sure that we're reaching our right audiences. Skincare is such a focus for us. I will say with the holiday season coming up right now, I would say everyone, please stay tuned. We just did an amazing collaboration with Jennifer Coolidge after our big game. And we went back in a second time with Jennifer because as you can imagine, she is an amazing artist and she just riffs. And during our big game shoot, she just sat at the vanity table and she put on a lipstick and she said, if I could name a lipstick, it would be, and she said the name would be Swollen or Dirty Pillows. And that to us was like a huge bad signal, right? When Queen Coolidge tells you what a lipstick shade should be, you move on that, right? You move at that elf speed. So we quickly knew that we had to make that happen for her. And we did. And we did it in like under six months. <laughs> and we put it out there. And the lip kit was really important for us to bring back to what I mentioned earlier at the start of the, this which is you've got to deliver value to our community. And so we priced it strategically at $25 to make sure it was accessible. And this is a super luxe four-piece kit. We sold out in less than two hours. And so wow. one thing wow. that I'll leave wow. all your viewers with is stay tuned because we are working behind the scenes right now at Elfspeed to furiously restock this for our community. They are so excited and overwhelming excitement around the Jennifer Coolidge Dirty Pillows Lip Kit. And I, stay tuned for that. And I will say, stay tuned for a lot more because we are not going to stop disrupting norms. We are not going to stop shaping culture. And we're certainly not going to stop connecting our communities with our amazing products. So, Wow. Well, 
That's a great tease. So we'll, we'll leave it there. But I, I, uh, I love I love the conversation. I hope for our audience, if they knew the Elf brand, they got a little bit of a, a peek under yes. the curtain or whatever the expression is. And if you don't know the Elf brand as a consumer or as a business strategist, brand professional, whatever you might be, there's so many great lessons there. Lori Lamb, thanks so much for joining us on the Remarkable Retail Podcast. We wish you continued success, though. I don't think you need any wishes from us for that to happen. seems like you're doing just fine on your own, but uh, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. If you like what you heard, please follow us on Apple, Spotify, or your favorite podcast platform so you can catch up with all our great episodes, including renowned author, entrepreneur, and leadership teacher, Seth Godin, talking about his incredibly timely and urgent book, The Song of Significance, A New Manifesto for Teams. And be sure and drop us that five-star review where you listen to your podcasts. It really helps us spread the word. And I'm Steve Dennis, strategy and innovation consultant, keynote speaker, and author of the best-selling book, Remarkable Retail, How to Win and Keep Customers in the Age of Disruption. You can learn more about me at stephenpdennis.com. And be sure to follow me on LinkedIn, Twitter, Threads, and Instagram. And I'm Michael LeBlanc, consumer retail growth consultant, keynote speaker, producer and host of a series of retail trade podcasts, including this one. You can learn more about me on LinkedIn. Safe travels, everybody.